Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We're speaking this evening with my father, Samuel Pelissier van Eden, who was born and raised in South Africa during apartheid-run South Africa on a dairy farm in the wine country about two and a half hours from Cape Town, South Africa. We'll be speaking to him this evening about growing up in South Africa on a dairy farm, the nature reserve that he spent a lot of his childhood at with his family, and leaving South Africa to travel the world on foot. Dad, where did you grow up, and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in a town called Swellendam, that's basically at the foothills of the Langeberg Mountains, and the farm ran sort of halfway up the mountain, it was very hilly country, like eastern Montana, rolling hills and mountains like the Beartooths, very high mountains that only got snow on in the winter. Snow didn't fall on the ground, snow was up on the mountain. Basically grew up barefoot, didn't wear shoes, wore a pair of lederhosen as a kid. Had an older black boy, was my babysitter, and we did everything under the sun together. Whenever one of us was naughty, did naughty things, both of us got a hiding. And that is how we were raised. You said you grew up without shoes on. Did you have to wear shoes to school, or were you also barefoot in school? No, I pretty much was barefoot until eighth grade. You could wear shoes. You don't have to wear shoes, but I just never wore shoes, even in the winter. Until I got to eighth grade, and that's where high school starts, and it was a rule then that you had to wear shoes. And you've always called yourself an African. But for those listening who wouldn't understand why you being white and still being an African would make sense, could you explain to them what South Africa was like then? Well, interesting way of putting it. There was peace talks between the leader of Zambia, Kenneth Kuwanda, in the 70s. And he tried to mediate talks. He actually framed the term of the white African tribe because he looked upon the Afrikaner as African, being that we were there since early 1652, 1648, basically. And my family's oldest ancestor that goes back was a Dutch sailor, and it was in 1652. And we are called Afrikaners. We're basically French, Dutch, German descendants, mostly Lutheran or Dutch Reform. Near the Dutch Reform Church was the religion, very conservative, ultra-conservative church. We spoke a language called Afrikaans, which is a derivative of Dutch. It's more like Flemish. It sounds more like Flemish, but it uses words from the French or the German origin as well. And then in high school, we had to study Dutch as a language because that's where our language started from. And the language is Afrikaans. It's a more guttural language than English, but not as guttural as Dutch is. How did the Dutch end up in South Africa? Let's talk about the spice route 
and more importantly, who was there before the Dutch came? South Africa, the Cape was discovered by Vasco da Gama and La Bartolomeas Diaz. These were Portuguese explorers in the 1400s. And then the East Indies was discovered, India and the spice route, Ceylon. And the Dutch had a company called the Verenigde Oost Indies de Compagnie, United East Indian Company. And they pretty much was the main traders to Ceylon and India for the spices. Cloves, peppercorns, things like that was very, very pricey. And so what happened is they needed a halfway point. They needed a station and in the 1648, they sent Van Riebeek to establish a halfway station. And he bought land or traded for land with the Hottentots, which is the Khoi people. They were people of a brown color, peppercorn type hair, sheep herders and cattle herders that lived there. They weren't black, they were brown, and they were, I would say, cousins to the Son, which is the Bushman. And then there was another group that was beachcombers. They mostly ate seafood and lived on the coast, gatherers and herders. And so the Dutch traded with them, and the Dutch was only interested in having a halfway station. They didn't think of developing the greater South Africa and have that as a colony. So if you were in the castle or the trading station for so many years... Then they allowed you to become a small farmer, and you could only trade with the Verenigde Oost Indische Compagnie, with the VOC. But slowly people dwindled off in other directions and created their own republics and things like that. And then when the French Huguenots got prosecuted in France for being Protestant, they were given rights to come and live there. And same as the Germans when they were prosecuted for their religious beliefs. So that's where the German and the French also came in. And that's how wine farming basically started in South Africa, also in the early 1700s. So that's where the whole group of the Afrikaner people developed out of those three cultures, French, German, Dutch. You spoke about the Khoi and the Khoisan, descendants of the Bushmen, as they're called in modern day. I'd also like to talk to you about the Bantu tribes, the Zulu, Nyatroza, more of the black tribes that are coming from the Eastern Cape in South Africa. South Africa has over 25 different languages and growing now because we have people coming in from Zimbabwe, Nigeria, the DRC. Well, that was always the thing. When I was a kid, the Kosa people, it was mostly in the area where I grew up, used to come and get jobs, but they had to have a passbook. They had a similar system as here in a sense of their tribal area. In their tribal area, that's what the apartheid was built on. It's like they live in their tribal area, and for them to come and work in a white area, they have to have a passbook. And whenever a policeman asked them for their passbook, they had to produce a passbook, otherwise they could be arrested. As a kid, I remember being that I grew up on a dairy farm, the black Kosa people, they loved the animals, so they were the herders. And they were the people that we employed most of the time for dairy farming. There wasn't drinking, wasn't too much of a problem. And the passbooks were all kept at the house. And then in the middle of the night, the police might make a raid on your farm and knock on the people's doors and ask for the passbooks. And a kid would slip out and run up to the farmhouse and wake my dad up and selling them this. The police is raiding the houses to look for illegal workers. And I remember one night my dad took the double-barrel shotgun 
And on the ride down to where the workers' houses was, he fired the shotgun out of the window of the pickup just into the air twice. The young policeman didn't know what was going on, what to do of it. Basically, ran off the farm. I grew up in a house where we did not approve of apartheid. And so my father was always at battle with the police about the raids and etc. For those listening who don't know what apartheid was, can you define it for them and what it was like to grow up in South Africa during apartheid? Apartheid was something that was developed by a guy called Favurt. An apart, it means what it says, apart, hate, apartness. You live together but apart. Basically, they qualified people as Bantu, which is the black natives, or colored, which was the brown people, offspring from the sun and the Khoisan and Malaysian slave blood. The colored people have more straight hair, looks more like Brazilian influence. And that was one of their tests. When people applied for their different ethnicity, they would put a pencil into the person's hair. And if the pencil moves through the hair, then he would be colored if he's brown. It broke up a lot of families in the sense that The grandpa or the parents might have been white and then it might be brown people in as well because before 1948, we did not have apartheid. So end of 1948 is when the National Party was voted into power where the apartheid came into place. So that meant that the Khoza people had their area where they lived and they weren't supposed to live in areas where the white people lived. The colored people could live pretty much everywhere, but they didn't have voting rights. You had your number one people, which was white, and you would be better if you spoke Afrikaans. But English-speaking whites had the same rights as Afrikaans-speaking whites. Then you had your colored people and also your Indian people from East Indian origin. And then you had the blacks, who was the native people. They had the least amount of rights, also because they were the majority of the tribes of the people, was. Yeah, Kosa, Zulu, Venda, Sutu, Tswana, Swazi. Today in South Africa, you have 11 official languages. And all of that means is that every person is allowed to vote and read and go to school in his language. English is the major economic language and the language is spoken in parliament. But everybody's language is recognized in the post-apartheid years. Apartheid caused a lot of problems, cost a lot of money. Was it a struggle to grow up in a family that did not support apartheid? Growing up in Swellendam, South Africa, you mentioned once that you wanted to hang a poster of Jimi Hendrix and that it was a big deal because Jimi Hendrix in the United States was a big symbol, but in South Africa he was black. And that meant you couldn't necessarily hang him on your wall because you were a white child. It was difficult because my father was an opposition leader. My mother grew up in a total Afrikaner thing where apartheid was supported, although she wasn't a racist. Both of them taught us to respect people of all races. But my mother had a problem with us putting a poster of Jimi Hendrix on the wall because she said, what would the servants think of, yes, we have a picture of a black man on the wall? So it gives you an idea. It was very confusing as a child, apartheid. You play on the farm, All your friends is black on the farm that you play with, the workers' kids. And tomorrow morning, all the white kids get picked up in a school bus and go to school. And the colored kids was required to go to school, but the black kids wasn't required to go to school. But if they did go to school, they ran to school. I mean, the four miles, barefoot, winter, whatever. 
My father used to take the kids in on the pickup on rainy days, but otherwise, that was pretty much the thing. It was just, it was kind of accepted. It's like, oh, that's how you do it. I was a popular kid at school, but come election year, which was in South Africa, it's every five years. In that fifth year, I was seen as a, a black lover, that I love black people and basically seen as a communist because I would want to give a black person a vote. So, yeah, it was confusing. You have friends that's basically racist. You grow up with people using slang words and things like that. Your mind is always conflicting when you're a kid. You don't know what the heck is going on, what's supposed to do, what's not supposed to do. So, yeah, it was kind of difficult. We're speaking with my father, Samuel Pellissier von Eden, talking to him about growing up in South Africa during the apartheid era. We're going to talk soon about how apartheid led him to leave South Africa and travel the world, but also the time that he served as a head machine gunner and chef on the submarines during the Cold War. Dad, I'd like to play a song. What song reminds you of growing up on the farm in South Africa? That's kind of difficult. It's something that I always found interesting. On Sundays, we weren't allowed to listen to rock and roll. We only had to listen to classical or opera. And it's funny enough that when I think of the child, mostly when I think of my childhood, is when I listen to Vivaldi or I listen to opera, like Mario Lanza. That is when I think a lot of what my childhood is, and I appreciate my mother a lot then for installing classical music in my life. Back to Mandela and the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. We're speaking with Samuel Pellissier von Eden, my father, about growing up in South Africa during apartheid, and we're going to talk now about the time he spent serving for the South African Navy on the submarines. He worked as a head chef and machine gunner during the Cold War. Why did you find yourself working on the submarines? We had what was called national service. So white males, when they turned 16, had to fill in their forms, and then you get excluded if you're still going to school. If you drop out of high school at the age 16, you had to go right away. Otherwise, till 18, then you, when you're done with high school, you have to go right away. Or if you went to university, then you had to go first, finish your university, but then you still had to go to do your service. It varied from 12 months to 18 months to two years. Depending on how much you served in the beginning is how much camps you had to do afterwards. Like if you did two years, then you didn't have to do that many camps. And the camp was every year when you finished with your military service, you had to go either for two weeks or a month, or six weeks, or three months. Now, if you belong to a special group in the military, you would be called back and go back to the border area of Namibia and maybe spend another three months away from work and your wife or your family. So it was pretty much a 10-year contract that you had to fulfill during your national service period. So I had a choice. I decided, well, I'm going to just join permanent force. That is three years. So if I spent three years nonstop, then I didn't have to do any military camps or anything like that afterwards. So when I joined, I got selected to go to officer school. 
And within the first three weeks of officer school, I made some kind of statement that I don't believe in apartheid and I think it's wrong. And the next week I was off of officer school. I didn't qualify suddenly anymore. At officer school, I met a guy that was in submarines and I thought, dude, that would be the thing for me. During high school, I studied domestic science. I always was interested in cooking. So when I joined the Navy, I joined as a chef. And so they took me in as a chef. And then after I did my chef course, then I went and do the submarine course. And so then I was on the submarines. Machine gun part came once every six months. We all had to go to the shooting range and do shooting practice. The gunnery officer pointed the rifle right at my face, and I pushed the barrel away a few times, and he thought that I don't trust him, and I said, I just don't like you to point a barrel at my face. So he asked me what I do, and I said, I'm the chef on the boat, and he says, oh, a cookie trying to tell me how to do with a gun, I'll show you. So the next moment, we shooting, at the 100-yard mark, I had full marks, at the 200-yard mark, I had full marks, and the 300-yard when I basically had sharp shooting skills in those days. I grew up with a pellet gun on the farm. My father would give me five pellets per day and in the evenings I had to report what I shot with my five pellets. And if I shot certain problem birds, like starlings or finches that eat the fruit crops, then I would get more pellets for those. So I guess that's where I got my shooting skills from. So then my captain decided to make me the machine gunner on board the boat. I was an able seaman. One day my first lieutenant came in and asked me why there's not enough food when I cook and when the other chef cooks, food gets thrown away. And I was a little bit stunned. I didn't know what to say. And I said, do you eat when he cooks? And he, he looked at me and he said, do you want the job? And the next week the senior chef got drafted off the boat and I was the senior chef on the boat. A submarine is referred to as a boat, not a ship. So I was the senior chef on the submarine. What was it like on the submarine? Small compact. I mean, I am six foot two. The height requirement was five foot eight maximum. So I was basically six inches taller than what the maximum height was. But there were so few people volunteering for the boat that they said, well, it's your problem. If you can live with it, that's fine. You had to bend down at every hatch that you go through. It was just foul air. It was a diesel submarine. I could describe it if you've seen the movie Das Boot. It was the closest submarine that you could refer to. It was a submarine hunter. So it was French, built a Daphne-class submarine. It had two diesel engines that turned electrical motors that charged the batteries or diesel motors that turn generators that charge the batteries and the batteries turn electric engines. So it's a very, very quiet boat. We could dive to 300 meters, which is a little bit more than 300 yards deep. But 930 feet deep is what we could dive. Crushing depth was 570 meters, I believe. The crushing depth is where the boat would be crushed from external pressures. So if the boat goes past that depth, you would be pretty much dead. We never had a problem. One of the other boats once had a leak and they had to drop the safety weights when they went past 300 meters. They dropped the safety weights which is 12 ton of lead to get up to the surface as fast as they can. 
It was small space. We had three watches on board the boat. So basically what that means is that they call the hot bunk system. Three people share two beds. There's always one person on watch and the other two roll out their sleeping bags. You're done with your watch. You roll your sleeping bag up, put it to the side. The next guy rolls his sleeping bag out, goes to sleep. Cooking, I used to get up at 6 o'clock, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. I would make breakfast, 7 o'clock, first sitting. The submarine kitchen, if I stood in the middle of the kitchen and I on a square diagonally over I could touch the corners and it pretty much be bent over all the time because the arch of the boat was coming over the top I stood right above my storeroom so first thing I'd do is I'd go down take out all the dry vittles I want put it on the top cans flour dry food whatever I turn around my refrigerator was right behind me the freezer was around the corner hot water cylinder was there this is a diesel submarine, so we had no desalination. So the amount of fresh water that you took to sea was the amount of fresh water that we had. So that was our biggest hindering. It's like how long can you stay at sea versus how long your fresh water can survive. Longest period that I spent was 39 days at sea. We took a trip to Dar es Salaam. Like I said, it was during the height of the Cold War. The weapons was imported into Africa all the time from Russia. We went into Dar es Salaam Harbor, dived, let one of the reconnaissance guys, which is your, so I say, seals, we let him out through the torpedo tube. He dived in, did his thing, came back, we picked him up. They spotted us because we took a radar photograph. Those days put a negative over the radar screen. Radar comes up, makes one sweep, comes down again, and you got everything recorded on the negative, and they spotted that. They had a small crash boat. None of those boats can just start up. It's not like turning a key and the engine starts. And we had to make a run for it pretty much. Another time, we worked with the Salus Scouts, which was the elite forces from Zimbabwe or Rhodesia at the time, called the Rhodesian Scouts, Salus Scouts. We trained them, and then we went into Mozambique Harbor, Lorenzo Marks, and they actually went in and blew up a big cargo ship full of weapons that came in. There were constantly operations like this up in Luanda. We went into Luanda in Angola. Those were the days where Angola and Mozambique, Dar es Salaam, these were all countries that were puppets to the communist system. The Russians, police, East Germans, soldiers, Cubans, a lot of Cuban soldiers was in Angola. So the South African government was fighting those forces at all times because that's where the rebel forces that were fighting apartheid, that's where they were getting their weapons from. They didn't care if you believe in apartheid or not. Everybody had to do the national service, and that's where the propaganda comes in. You know, you basically were told all the time that everything is better than communism. doesn't matter if it's apartheid or not apartheid so you did what you had to do otherwise you went to jail for pretty much five years if you was a conscientious objector did you ever use the machine gun while on duty off luanda once I had to fire the machine gun but it was very small incident when we out there you were constantly looking out you know everything was done in the dark it was selected for dark moon nights we dived into that harbor too and the th big thing with the submarine was everything was very discreet. So if you get caught, you pretty much ran. You try to get away without using your torpedoes 
We got very close one time to use a torpedo, but these were things would be international incidences and the apartheid government would not get away with the international incidences because then it'll basically come out where you get your weapons from. A lot of these things was bought not on the black market, but under the table. And South Africa government had to pay obviously a lot more for the weapons than other countries would have been because at some point in time, the UN declared a weapon boycott against South Africa. And that's when South Africa started manufacturing its own weapons. The weapon industry was massive in South Africa at one point. They manufactured minesweepers, they manufactured crash boats, they carried missiles on them, boats. Americans always believed that they were the ones, the Apache helicopter, shoot where you look technology was actually developed by a South African and the French built the system for them. Also there was a missile called the Cactus Missile that Israel discovered during the Zion War or the Six Day War, one of those wars that something is taking their planes down all the time and until the South African looked at it and said well that is the Cactus Missile and so then they said oh these are the flaws of the missile. The French weapon manufacturer of those missiles then did admit that they did sell it to Egypt. So weapon technology was very high during the apartheid years, took a very prominent place. They made the cannon that could shoot within a couple of meters radius at 50 miles. The projectile was cable with fins on it and could be directed in flight. So weapon-wise, South Africa used to be a major weapon manufacturer. Were you ever spotted underwater and had to take diversive action? Yes, on that Dar es Salaam run we were spotted and they pinged us and pinged mean you know they know where you are and then you go through all kinds of actions to stop them from spotting you more. You send out a container that makes a big air bubble behind you and then you dive below the air bubble and the air bubble reflects the pinging of their sonars. If they start depth charging, you pretty much like the Second World War tactics, throw out oil, throw out cloth out through the submarine to the torpedo tube so that they think they got you. The main defense of the Daphne-class submarine was that it was a very small submarine and very quiet. So we could actually go and lie on the seabed and hide between rocks, and then they can't identify you. And this is, you know, in the 70s and 80s. These submarines was built basically early 70s, and they were constantly kept up with the latest technology. Contracts that the South African government had with the French government or the French weapon manufacturers. We're in the studio with Samuel van Eeren, my father, who has been talking about growing up in South Africa and also working as the head chef and machine gunner on the submarines during the Cold War. Dad, I'd like to play a song. What song reminds you of your adventures at sea when you were working at the South African Navy on the submarines in the 70s and early 80s? We didn't have videos. We used to watch movies real movies with reels and watch the Benny Goodman story. Whenever I hear Benny Goodman, that's when I think of the submarine life. For some other reason, Benny Goodman brings out the submarine life in me. It's The Trail Has Traveled with Mandela.
were speaking with Samuel Pellissier van Eden, my father. We've been speaking to him about growing up in South Africa during apartheid, which lasted from 1948 until 1994, when Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Nelson Mandela later became the first black president of South Africa. We've also spoken to him about working on the submarines for the South African Navy as a head chef and machine gunner during the Cold War. Dad, I'd like to talk to you now about San Sebastian, which is a very special place for the both of us. It's a private nature reserve at the most southern point of the continent of Africa, where you spent a lot of your childhood growing up and where you and my mother raised me. As a kid, the first time I ever saw it, my mother bought plots there, two or three plots, and they were going to develop this as a resort town. But South Africa was run in a sense that you couldn't just develop something if because you got the money. The Minister of Development had to approve it. And so a friend of my dad from his college years was one of the main developers. And so we started going there on a regular basis. My father eventually bought the rights to one of the huts there. So we started going pretty much every weekend through the winter, through the summer. It was a unique place in the sense that family, one person wants to go to one place, other person wants to go to another place. This place, everybody wanted to go to. Totally undeveloped. It was a sand track through the dunes. You had to let the tires down, make the tires a little bit flat so that you don't get stuck and you had to learn to drive in sand pretty much similar to driving in snow. You never gun your engine, get it in second gear and just pretty much keep on going. And most of the time you got stuck and you had to push and do whatever, break branches, put underneath the tires. And then in the, I would say, late 70s, the company went bankrupt and my father and a few friends, there were 10 guys all together, put money together and bought the place. Well, they bought half of the place and the other half a farmer bought. The part that was farmable, he bought and they took the area that's not farmable. It's mostly sand dunes with brass on it, very similar to the sagebrush that you see in the Nevada desert, but very dry, arid area, mostly sand dunes, sandy soil. Small deer, lynx, a type of a lynx did you get there, a rock chuck called a dasi, and it's the closest link to an elephant that you can find, but it's small, the size of a rabbit. A wide variety of seafood, octopus, things like that. And from a very young age, I would say 13 on this, I was like taught how to hunt for seafood on the rocks and octopus, which I tried to put over to Mandela when she was young. I remember a specific incident. She had a little pink bikini outfit on and I was helping everybody going over a particular rock with a tidal pool right next to it. And I said, look there, Mandela, that crab is really scared of human beings and he's sitting on top of the rock. So under the rock is something that he must be more scared of, which I bet you is an octopus. And a friend said, man, why do you got an imagination? And I said, hey, Mandela, give me your top. And she took her top of her bikini off and I dangled it in the water and out came the octopus coming for it and basically grabbed the octopus and you go through the terrible thing of beating it to death. And that's how we used to hunt octopus by hand, grab them and then 
throw them on the rocks and slam them and beat them basically to death until I discovered years later that an octopus is rated to have the same brain as pretty much a dog has. And that's when I kind of stopped hunting octopus. But I can also remember hiking the 17 miles to the other nearest river mouth where was another little resort. And at times I was carrying Mandela on my shoulders through the tidal pools. And Seawell from up there had a better view because you don't have the reflection on the water. And she'd go, Dad, there's an octopus over there. Dad, there's an octopus over there. And we ended up at the Breer River mouth with three huge octopus that we caught on the way. We used to do octopus for fishing and for eating. So after it was purchased, they got together and they decided to make it a private nature reserve with the help of the South African Nature Conservancy, and that's what it is today. We try to keep alien bushes out of there and just protect the wildlife that there is. We have very specific building rules. The huts has got to stay in the same style of basically what happened. A Scottish ship years, years ago in the 1800s ran aground there, and these guys built themselves some huts for protection, and they build huts in the same way that they had in Scotland. And that's where the style of hut came from. The grass or reed is from the area. The yucca plant has got a long stem that grows up at some point. That's what's used as straight poles. And that is how the building style till today is at this place. You left South Africa in the mid to late 80s because of apartheid and you were done with your time serving on the South African Navy and you traveled the world with a backpack on foot. Tell us about the adventures that you encountered after you left South Africa. I told my parents I'm going to go walk about and they agreed. I didn't see any future in the country. It was 1983, I finished college. So I took my backpack, flew to Europe via Lux Air. It's a cheap airline. They put you in like goats in a truck. Flew to Luxembourg. Those days, South Africa had to get a visa for everywhere in Europe you had to go. That was difficult always to got to Holland. Enjoyed Amsterdam tremendously. I mean, the thing of coffee shops and hash cake and space cake and space yogurt and space pizza full with hash in it was like, wow. Had some incredible times. I can remember looking at the Van Gogh Museum, put myself down in front of a painting, and about an hour later saying, wow, I'm still watching the same painting. I guess that's why they call it Get Stoned. You, you just sit there and you forget. Then I went to Germany by train, drove north with a girlfriend that I met in Munich, went to Cologne, then to Denmark, went to place called Christiana in Denmark where the same rules as in Amsterdam pretty much existed. Asked the guy, I said, isn't there a lot of fighting going on here? And he says, no, 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 no fighting. Next moment he jumps up, kicks a guy right in the middle of the chest. The guy falls backwards over the rail, off the steps, down. And I said, what the hell? He told me that guy is using, meaning he was using heroin. And the Danish government told them that they can sell hash and marijuana, but as soon as anything else is used there, meaning coke, any hard drugs, anything like that, they shut the place down. So the guys who were selling the marijuana on hash, they kept the big drugs out. And it was a very peaceful place. It was interesting, though, is that the conservative section of the Danish government wanted it closed, and the liberals said that it's got its purpose. 
The moment the Swedes or the Norwegians leaned on the Danish government to close it, the Conservatives said, hey, we're not going to close it, we'll keep it open. Just don't let a Swede or Norwegian tell a Danish what to do. Then after that, I went up north. I read the book, The Drifters, by Michener. In the book was a lady that came from Karuna, up in the northern part of Norway, and I wanted to go see what that's like. So I caught a train all the way up north into the Arctic Circle just to go see what it's like. And it was in December, so it was dark all the time, cold and dark. That's where I ate a whale steak. And to them, that was just normal. They described it to me as big fish, big fish, but not fish, big fish, but not fish. So some guy leaned over and he goes, that's whale. Try it, it's pretty good. So that's where I ate whale. And then went back to Luxembourg, flew to Connecticut, New York. A friend of mine picked me up there. Christmas in Connecticut. This is in 1983. Then I contacted a company called Driveaway Company, and I drove a car from New York to L.A. I'll never forget picking up the car in downtown Manhattan, and I drove out the bottom of the parking garage, and I saw a guy there, and I said, Hey, hey, can you show me the, can you give me directions to get to uh, California? And the guy looked at me, and he called this old man. He said, Hey, he wants to know how to get to California. And the old man walked up, and he said, Head west, young man, head west. And I said, Yeah, I know that. He said, Oh, you want directions to the tunnel. So he gave me direction to the Jersey tunnel and he said, just follow all the signs that says west. And that's how I drove across the country. Got pulled over for speeding every three states, basically, because I wasn't used to driving 55 miles an hour. Then ended up in Arizona eventually, where I worked on a dairy farm making electricity from cow manure, fermenting the cow manure and wastewater under these huge tops, and then they catch the methane gas, and then they ran it through a caterpillar engine, turning a turbine, and they manufactured all the electricity for the farm from that, and then the old cow manure, what the methane gas was spent, was bagged and sold as steer manure, and like the farmer told me, he never knew that he would make more money out of cow poop than cow milk. That's not why he started the farm, he wanted to use the milk, but he made more money because by law in the United States, if you manufacture electricity, what you don't use, your main electrical supplier in the area has to buy from you. So they made a lot of money from the cow manure, selling a steer manure and electricity. Oh, and I went to a rodeo of rodeos. Uh, what was his name? The biggest Western writer in the world. I want to say Leon somebody. He was the master of, of ceremonies and I saw these guys riding bulls. I got mad at one guy who was spitting next to me all the time, and I said to this girl that was with me, I said, if he, this guy spit next to me one more time, I'm going to beat his ass. And she goes, don't do that. I said, why not? She goes, look around. Everybody is spitting. And that's when I realized, you know, how much people chew tobacco. But I said, I want to ride a bull too. So we went to a bull riding place where you could pay $15 and ride a bull. The time that Mayan bull came around... I've seen the ambulance three or four times already coming to pick up people. I'm like, what the heck am I doing? And I was on that bull for six seconds. When the bull decided to go into the barriers, came off, looked up, and I looked at two red eyes between four feet of horns, and I decided that I'm on the wrong side of the barrier. Jumped over the barrier and 
far as I'm concerned, I did pretty good because I still had my hat on. And that's what counted. Keep your hat on. There wasn't days before bulletproof jackets and crash helmets that they wear nowadays. They announced the African bull rider. The African bull rider. Sam Van Eden. Cowboy from Africa. I was like, man, I don't know nothing about bull riding in Africa. But it was fun. Then I bought a car, took the back seat out. It was a Toyota Celica. Painted the African flag on the back or African map and drove through Arizona all the way up to Alaska with that car. It's in the Grand Canyon in the strip going to Alaska. So I hiked the Grand Canyon. I can remember standing there, couldn't get a place in the Grand Canyon from the south room. So I went to the north room and I was wearing like a sarong, folded kind of like a diaper, flip-flops. The phone rang. So he's standing there, and he's giving these two people a lecture of they must bring everything back, everything. Their fecal matter, everything had to come out of this canyon where they were going in. But he answered the phone, and he looked through the crowd of people and said, no, 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 he's not here. Okay, and they hanged up. And then they were talking about what he's all going to bring out. I said, where the heck are you sending these guys to hell or what? And the guy looked at me, and he looked the way I was dressed, and he said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Africa. He suddenly grabbed the phone again, phone the other side. He goes, oh, yeah, he's here. He's here. And then later he told me, because I was looking for a black guy because they were looking for an African. So I hiked the Grand Canyon in flip-flops in a sarong in the backpack. In my backpack, I had an ice cooler with ice-cold beer and a bottle of wine and a glass in it. Got to the bottom. I offered this guy, James Nikas, who came later, came Mandela's godfather, I offered him a beer, and he thought, I must be European drinking warm beers. And he said, no, thank you. And then I opened the ice cooler and took the beer out, and he said his mouth was just watering when he saw the dew forming on the ice-cold beer can. But at that point, he couldn't say, yes, I'll take a beer, because he already said no. Next morning, I ran to the Grand Canyon. I had to run basically to the Colorado River, swam, and then ran back, took my backpack, and hiked out was nearly dead and James was a geologist so everywhere as we hike he's telling us where we are now in the elevation because he would look at this rock formations and I mean me and his girlfriend just wanted to die but we made it to the top eventually then I met them in San Francisco and that's how I met his cousins who employed me and then the other cousin who I worked painting the house for and basically became my family and we still stay in touch today. If it wasn't for him, he was a lawyer who helped me basically with immigration and everything like that. From there, I also went to Guatemala and back the other time went to South Africa via Peru, bust all through Peru, hiked up to Machu Picchu and bust through Bolivia, trains and buses and planes, Santa Cruz de la Sierra, across the mountains, the Andes Mountains, and all I remember was lightning and the planes shaking like crazy and seeing the whole mountain range, and a lady is just making crosses next to me. And I'm just saying, no problema, sonorita, no problema. Meantime, I am scared as hell as well, thinking of the rugby team who turned to cannibalism in the Andes Mountains. We flew from there to Porto Barrios, from there, we went a bus and a train all the way to Rio de Janeiro, and how much fun it was. 
great thing to be young and travel and not worry about things all in the backpack. Went to South Africa, came back to America, and then I met Jeannie Mandela's mother at a barbecue of a friend who graduated from Stanford University. And together we went to uh, Jasper and Banff, and that's basically, I think, where Mandy must get her love for nature from because that's where her life started. It's in the Peace Park between Glacier, Waterton National Peace Park. And then we went all the way up into Canada, Jasper and Banff and back, and pretty much traveled with Mandela since she was a little kid and never stopped, never let a baby stop you from what you do, what you love to do. I believe you just incorporate them and then that rub off onto them. Mandela was one years old. We went to live in New Zealand where Jeannie was a standby flight attendant. So we were in Auckland. Every year we traveled to South Africa, went to the Krieger Park, went to Zimbabwe, Australia. All these places just traveled with her constantly and they just become used to it and then it's like they want to do the same thing. I can remember in Zimbabwe at Lake Ariba and it, seeing these crocodiles and all I could see is Mandela walking up to a crocodile in my brain. I was like, ooh, nice crocodile, nice crocodile. And I remember just being sick worrying about that. It was a wonderful trip. That's my advice to anybody who likes to travel and have children or is worried that children is going to stop them from doing it. Is just keep doing it. The child will adopt to what you like to do. Thanks, Dad. It's been a real pleasure interviewing you, and I've learned a lot about your life and my own from this interview. I'd like to end this show with three Sam Funyeden adventure tips. Travel as much as you can while you're young. Find jobs. Do it. Go where you want to. Pack your suitcase, unpack it, and only take half of what you packed originally. Something I would always say is make sure you take a pair of pants that's not jeans, like nice slacks. There's many places in the world where they don't allow jeans. And slacks is just as easy. My father always told me, he says, you can go to a barbecue in, in Beverly Hills wear a suit and jacket and tie and see that everybody is in slacks and you can take the tie and jacket off and you can fit in with them like nothing happened. But you can never make a t-shirt and jeans into a suit. So always maybe overdress a little bit and then you can take some of the stuff off to feel more comfortable. But you can't updress, you, you can always downdress. Always have a $100 bill. In the old days I had a $10 bill, but always have a $100 bill rolled up somewhere that is only used in an emergency. Have a needle in your wallet with cotton because you always need something to sew a button back on with. And that needle gets used for many, many other uses. Anti-diarrhea medicine. Diarrhea is one of the first things that can bring you down to your knees and you can't do anything. I remember at South America having terrible stomach problems. And I was traveling with a girl, and all she wanted to do was give me more mate de coca. More mate de coca, more mate de coca. Well, it stopped me from dehydrating. But finally, I found these lomitols, which was anti-diarrhea medicine and was expired by two or three years. So I just took a double dose of it or triple dose of it. Hey, didn't go to the bathroom for maybe two or three days, but I didn't have to run anymore. Those small emergencies, 
always make sure that you have those things with you. Dad, what song would you like to end the show with? What song reminds you of your lifetime of adventures around the world? You know, there's a group in South Africa, or old group when I was younger, called Jaluka. They had a song called Scatterings of Africa. I mean, I love all kinds of music, the Stones, but I would say Jaluka, Scatterings of Africa. Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to documenting humanity by collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the planet. Subscribe to The Trail Less Traveled podcast on iTunes and check out traillesstraveled.net to follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. I would like to thank my guest for this week, my father, Samuel Elisir van Eeren. Samuel's family has been in South Africa since 1682, and before that, they were in the Netherlands. Samuel comes from an Afrikaner family and grew up on a dairy farm underneath the Langebach mountain range outside of Swellendam, South Africa. He spent a lot of his childhood on a private nature reserve at the most southern point of the continent of Africa on the Indian Ocean called Bastion Bay Nature Reserve. This is a place he took me a lot as a child. He left South Africa in the 80s to travel the world. Europe, South America, Central America, Mexico, and finally the bottom of the Grand Canyon. His passion for travel continues, and to this day he finds himself traveling all over Europe, Guatemala, Africa, and various parts of the world with an endless curiosity for art, music, food, and culture. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for the show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and talk to them in their natural habitat. My adventure tip this week is in regards to the great white shark population off the coast of southern Africa. If you watch Shark Week, you might notice that there's quite a lot of great white sharks, and some say the highest population of great whites per capita. That isn't any reason to not go into the ocean. South Africa has some of the best surf in the world. The only precautions I would suggest would be to not necessarily swim or surf with an open wound during dawn and dusk. Don't let your fear of sharks prevent you from enjoying some of the best surf the world has to offer. Well, that's it for this week, my friends, in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, get outside and shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar cannot shred itself. <laughs>